You're listening to DevOps and Docker Talk, and I'm your host, Brett Fisher. These are edited audio-only versions of my YouTube live show that you can join every Thursday at brett.live. This podcast is sponsored by my Patreon members. I'd like to thank all the paid supporters that make this show possible. You can get more info and follow my updates on all the content and open source I'm creating at patreon.com slash brettfisher. And as a reminder, all the links for this show, the topics we discuss, as well as the links I've already mentioned, are available on the podcast website at podcast.brettfisher.com. In September of 2021, I had Ben Arendt, a developer relations engineer of Teleport on the show. Now, if you haven't heard of Teleport, we're going to get into it, but it's essentially a fancy remote access technology, mostly open source, that allows you to access endpoints as well as systems like Kubernetes remotely without a traditional VPN. I think it's an interesting way to provide your team's granular access and really lock down what remote endpoints people can get access to. And it also uses some great security underneath that we get into as well. So please enjoy this episode with Ben from Teleport. Thanks, Brett. Yeah, you can tell I have the... Um... <laughs> Sorry, I distracted you. I know. Yeah, I have the East Bay accent. Um, originally from the UK, <laughs> but been here a decade. Yeah. And I'm a DevOps engineer at Teleports, and I've worked in a range of developer tools probably for a decade now. I was just talking to Brad about all of my adventures in various companies that you may know. I worked Redis to Go, Airbrake, Rackspace, OpenStack, all sort of fun projects that have come and gone. So one thing that's always been standard is you always need to get some kind of access. Yeah. That is universal. So that's going to be our focus today. If you're all are, are just tuning in, we're going to be focusing on specifically cloud native, modern remote access. So we're going to go through some of the problems of the past and the ways we did it before. And I have personally heard about previously the gravity project and then teleport when you all announced, was it last year you announced the change? I feel yeah. like that was last year. Yeah. And then 2019, but okay. last year was the blur. Yeah, yeah that's true. That's true. I think last year was the year that I was actually becoming more aware of the projects and what you all were working on and stuff over there. So all of you out there, you may have heard of Gravity, which was a project by Teleport. I might be getting this wrong, but now oh, we all know you as Teleport. Yeah. yeah. Gravitational. Yeah, so, so now everything's Teleport. Yeah, so a bit about Gravity and sort of the founding of the company. And I actually worked with uh, Sasha and Taylor at Rackspace when they were working at Mailgun. And I think they saw the similar problem of trying to run compute anywhere. And Gravity was this idea of packaging up your applications and being able to run them, we would call them as zero DevOps. And Teleport was a method for accessing those clusters. And under the hood, Gravity would package, it was a, we'd say like Kubernetes runs your applications and Gravity runs Kubernetes. And so that let people run uh, and package Kubernetes clusters into a whole bunch of different places. So you could run Kubernetes on premise, but without having to get external resources. Or we had other people who SaaS providers might want to sell their SaaS product in someone else's data center. And by using Gravity, they could package everything up. They would need to have external resources and run it in their DC. And one of the benefits of Teleport, which we pulled from Gravity was Teleport let you access and maintain and do a whole bunch of other controls over those um, systems. 
It sounds like it was you were solving it. You were scratching your own itch. It sounds like you were solving your own problem there. <laughs> yeah. So it started off with uh, Kubernetes and server access. And over the last couple of years, we've added application and database access as well. Very nice. Let's back up for a second because we were talking about what to talk about on the show. And it was an interesting idea to talk about the origin of remote access, SSH and all the things and where that starts to struggle in our modern multi-platform, multi-cloud world. Yeah, it depends how far back in the history of access. And I think that's <laughs> often, you know, like 2021, people will say, oh, you don't need to access machines. It's cattle-free pets, immutable infrastructure. If you access a node, I actually had a, I always work for the DevOps lead. And if you accessed it, they'll terminate the instance after five minutes. It was seen as like a toxic. <laughs> Who knows what you did? <laughs> Who knows what you did? It's, yeah, remove it and fire something else in there. But the reality of modern DevOps is that you always need, someone needs to get access to the infrastructure for a range of things. So even if you have a fully immutable infrastructure, you may need a team to pull logs of a system prior to rotating it, which could be like your security team. And then what becomes interesting when you go into the world of Kubernetes, everything is talking to like a REST API and how do you get like a full audit log of who's doing what and having an order log of history about which commands are being run. And I think if you think about cloud providers in general, someone still has access to your machines. And so they could be like serial. I think Amazon even added a serial bus recently. So yep. you have like serial bus, you have SSH, you have these like all methods in which you do need to get some sort of access to machines. And we see a plethora of people from all sorts of interesting use cases. So we have some people deploying raspberry pies into farmers fields and they need to get like some kind of remote access but there's no sort of a central command plane and you can run teleport in this mode that teleport can dial back and deal with nat traversal and you don't have to necessarily worry about your networking as well and so you can think of teleport as this unified access plane that you don't have to worry about protocols or even the network and everything is done specific to that protocol so for our server support, we just use open SSH certificates under the hood. And then we just have a whole bunch of stuff that makes that much easier for you to use. I go to the website and there's a, a list of products. And are they all related? Because they all just seem to be access focused, right? Yeah, I guess they're all related, but they're also very deep in the protocol. And so if we start with server access, I think this is probably what people are most familiar with. So when you uh, have a cloud provider, you'll often provide your public private key. You generate a private key on your host, you upload your public key, and that's sort of how you authenticate. That kind of works well for your smaller projects. But if you're working with a team, let's say you're five people, do you have to upload every five public keys to the server? And then do you have a script that runs it when they leave? And it's so very quickly doesn't become a sustainable way of adding new people to get access. Right. And there's also the lack of visibility once people sort of leave. And open SSH has had certificate support for a while. And this lets you, instead of providing a sort of long-lived public private key, you can use a short-lived like X509 certificate for access. And that's what all of these sort of different platforms use. So short-lived access for us. So you can also use the same thing for kube configs. Instead of having long-lived kube configs, 
you only get a cube config for a 10 hour period. And then if you right. want to access, use cube cuddle again, you need to get a new cube config based upon how you've set it up. Yeah, I, I think a couple of years ago, I was reading at least one great article about SSH using certificates rather than keys and the benefits of all that. And to me, it always seemed like the challenge was implementation and maintenance of that. There's a lot of... Yeah, because you have to manage a certificate authority and then you have to worry about rotating of certificates. And that is all abstracted away and Telebot makes that very easy for you. Right. Yeah, and there's never really been... Like, I think every project I work on, the way we get into things, because especially if you're DevOps or you're especially ops, when things go awry, you got to get on servers usually. At some point, you got to get on those servers. So the, the methodology for how you get there and how you do it securely, and I find that it's related to the maturity of the team, the, the way that you access it and making sure that keys are taken off and that people that are, have left have had all their keys removed. That's not stuff that a young team has, right? Like a young team, as you're saying, like throwing SSH keys of their own on servers randomly when they need them. They might have a, a cloud init script that automatically installs them at startup time and there's a list or maybe there's one key and then it's given to all the people like that, that need it. And then the problem is how do you replace that key and how do you know who accessed it and all that stuff. And there's just, I feel like it's not a solved universal problem. And it, yeah. it's glad to see more ideas in this space because we do it's funny you don't see a lot of this discussed at conferences you go to cloud native stuff and like you said at the very beginning we we talk about this utopia world where we never need ssh we never need remote access to a physical machine and everything's wonderful and you just if it, there's a problem you just turn it off and replace it and then that magically fixes it and you and that's just really not true at any scale that i'm aware of unless you're netflix or google which you probably then have tooling to automatically pull off snapshots so that you can debug after the fact. That's a yeah. really advanced workflow that's beyond the scope of what we're trying to talk about today. But um, that's what I end up seeing out there. So I'm glad that you, you're seeing the same thing. And it sounds like these solutions are trying to address those problems because, and some of this is open source, right? Um, yeah, the majority, so we're sort of an open core company, which means you know, 80, probably like 90% of our code is in our open source repo. And you get everything that you'd really need for even like a small team. You get all of the access to the different platforms. The only thing that sort of we gate on would be more enterprise single sign-on providers, but we provide GitHub. You can use local auth. We recently added role-based access control into open source edition, which was a highly requested, but everything else works. Kubernetes access works, databases. And then there's another new feature for teams, which we call access requests. And access requests let you request access from other teammates. And probably if you're running in a small team, it's probably less of a concern. You can like have wider access, but for people who want to really gate and have extra compliance, it, that's one of the features that we provide. Interesting. So that's almost like a, a PR review on my server access <laughs> at, the, yeah. at the moment I and need it. And what's cool is you can also set it similar to your point in the Navy. I actually did a webinar on the nuclear launch codes. So you can set like multiple people. So you have like three people must approve this before you can launch access right. in. So and then we have other people. No, you did it. Because <laughs> not everybody yes. looks at logs. Like we might log everything, but if there's something about the analogy of if the tree falls in the woods and no one's around, is it really whatever? If a server, if a guy, if someone uh, SSHs into a server and it's logged, but no one's reading the logs, did it really happen? Does it? Does anyone know? Does it matter? Because now you have that one-off server that's slightly changed, but no one else but you. Yeah, knows that's another benefit of Teleport. Provides decentralized logging without having to use Audit D or some other kind of configuration, which can be tricky. Yeah. Or you just forget about it and then something happens. You're like, oh, where are our logs? So 
this is covering Kubernetes, databases. I, I meant teleport as a whole. Databases. Uh, so for databases, we have MySQL and Postgres. We support Kubernetes. So you can think of this as getting your sort of short-lived kubeconfigs. Mm -hmm. We have applications, so securing internal web apps, and then servers. Okay. The yeah. server could be anything from a Raspberry Pi to a... A thing that's running a kernel <laughs> yes. that you can connect to in some way. Can it be self-hosted? Yes. Actually, only recently did we have a cloud version. For a long time, we were self-hosted. And our open source edition is also self-hosted. I have Teleport running on the public internet. And we generally assume in the world of the sort of access tools, you have the idea of bastion hosts and jump hosts. Yep. One is inside of your network security and one is inside, one is outside. I think uh, jump host is outside, bastion's inside. The proxy is fine to be on the public internet. And there's also methods in which you can run teleport in a sort of very secure way in which the proxy service runs separately from the auth service. And we go very deep in our, we take our security very seriously. And so your teammates welcome with this sort of sign in and you can sign in with local user. And we always enforce a strong second factor. Or our preferred method is this user identity provider that you already have. I have a GitHub group. Even when I work with teams that have, they might have Kubernetes in it, there might be a jump host, but it's usually just one jump host and we all have to know the name or the IP <laughs> to get through. Um, and it, utility machines like that often don't get a lot of the love, right? Because it's usually the production oh, yeah. infrastructure for the customer, the internal customer, the whatever, the developer customer that you're dealing with. It's usually that that gets all the attention and it's usually this other ancillary infrastructure that tends to suffer from a lack of automation and stuff. So this it's good to see that concepts like that, where it doesn't really matter what machine I'm getting into, I just need to get into a machine. Yeah, you can also put in your AWS tags as well. So it's pretty common to have like heavily tagged machines and you right. can just use that same sort of tag flow in Teleport. And so right now when you're running these commands, you're running it against basically a Teleport instance, right? That you've got running on a machine somewhere. Yes, that's when I logged in. We do support multiple clusters as well. Depending upon how you configured, you can configure like multiple trusted clusters. And this is another powerful feature that we have. Even like some customers who are like MSPs, which is a sort of service provider. Yep. And if they want to get access to someone else's infrastructure, they can just share their trusted cluster for a short period of time and then cut off that access. And it deals with that sort of jumping between hosts seamlessly. So first question is, if we're talking about Kubernetes... Um, which we actually haven't gotten to yet, but we've got some questions coming in, so I'm prefacing this. Teleport needs to be in each cluster of Kubernetes. So when I say, when I see THS clusters, is that teleport clusters or Kubernetes clusters? Or are they the same? They could be the same thing, depending upon how you've deployed it. In my case, I just deployed my sort of root teleport cluster mm -hmm. on a dedicated um, AWS host, but I could have also just deployed Teleport just in a Kubernetes cluster, and that would mm -hmm. be the same thing. And you, I'm sure, you, can you run it all the same way? Like you can run it in Docker, you can run it natively on the host, you can run it in Kubernetes, you can just kind of run it how you prefer. Yeah. How is this different or better than the zero trust network access concept, also named the VPN killer feature that is available more and more on firewalls? You can think of it... I guess the world of zero trust is definitely an abused term. It can mean lots of different things. And I think teleport is part of a zero trust policy to deploy. So we do have some customers who will deploy a VPN and use teleport. So there's still 
uses of VPNs, but it's not required. And how different is very deep on the protocol and then also deep on the um, individual action and identity, which can be different from some zero trust solutions. I think the answer is always kind of complex. I mean, if you talk to like a person in a uh, conference booth, depending upon what they're selling, they'll like sell whatever they need. But often you need like multiple sort of solutions to obtain these sort of zero trust. And for myself, as well as those that maybe don't know, in this context, what are we assuming? What do we consider zero trust in this context? So I think you like step back a bit. Mm-hmm. I think in the old days, I would have given you access to the VPN and then you could have access to everything. And so how things have evolved is when you logged in, you had to authenticate through GitHub to prove that you were your own identity. And then Teleport also enforces these short-lived certificates and everything audited. And it also goes like deep on the protocol. And so, it's to a specific uh, resource instead of most VPNs that I use, that it's a you have access to everything, like or everything that the VPN has access to, you carp launch, right? It's all it's a universal policy, it's a very broad set of systems and resources, and you may only need one server. I don't know if that's in the scope of zero trust ideas, but that's something that's always been attractive to me is where giving people basically in that moment just the thing they need and not over-provision, which is what VPN is classically known for, over-provisioning complete access, which is where a lot of the it's the whole, we have one guard at the gate, and once you get past the gate, there's no more security. <laughs> so you have access to all the ports and all the servers and all the networks as long as you get through the VPN connection. So that, yeah, this seems much more granular and flexible. Yeah, and this is not a great example since these are two wildcard stars, but it does let you use the labeling we already saw, and then you can create roles to provide sort of fine-grained access for whether it's labels on Kubernetes clusters or also groups. Another bad example is system masters is not a great example of zero trust in Kubernetes because you give access to everything. Mm -hmm. Up to you to assign your Kubernetes groups and then give them to um, your teammates appropriately. Yeah, so you got a Mac there. So on a Mac, if I need to SSH on a server, is there something running in the background as a service that's like relaying my SSH or how does that connection actually happen? have this like TSH, a mm-hmm. small binary that you download and install, which does everything behind. One of the things that it just like populates these clusters. And so you can see here, these like the X509 certificates for this cluster. So, mm-hmm. so this is my ones for SSH. What is slightly different for kubeconfigs, we actually populate your um, kubeconfigs locally, but under the hood, going back to like our open SSH public private keys for these certificates, under the hood, it's just open SSH certificates, but in a much easier way than having to manage and orchestrate it yourself. Okay. So in this case, there has to be a machine on the internet that is running SSH for me to get to? Teleport's yeah. not providing a, a separate port tunnel into some place that has an SSH daemon running somewhere? I think so. Yeah, I'm correct. So you could just run Teleport. Once you run Teleport in a certain independent of on the mode in which you run it, yeah. you don't necessarily get access to SSH into that node. Okay. You then need to add nodes running the SSH service to connect back to your sort of root cluster. And you actually have two options. You can connect over the local network. If you're, you say you could you know, configure Teleport in a VPC, or you could just, in my case, I just have Teleport on the public internet and I'm tunneling through, but you actually don't even need to do that. You can change your sort of network setup depending upon sort of the risks in your organization. 
Sly has a question similar. Can you explain better how it works? Do you have a server running and an agent in every machine? Did that network diagram do a basic description of some of the sort of the pieces? There's probably a better one. That one was actually maybe how it works might be a good one. So we have this teleport basic concepts, which is this probably a perfect one. So we have the users, which go through the proxy, which is teleport.ashru.earth. And we have our auth server. In our case, we have registering. So if I need to access it, I go through the proxy and this proxy dials back. So in this SSH node, we're running a teleport service in node mode. So an agent. Okay. And that's and the then four different so that's the four different ways or the four different types of resources I can access through the proxy. Okay. And then for Kubernetes, I've deployed uh, Helm charts, which is the same sort of thing, but it runs teleport in the Kubernetes mode. Runs a, I'm assuming it runs a pod with a similar executable that you ran on uh, native SSH on the host there. Yeah. Yeah. And the same for web apps. So I actually have another cool example in which I'm running Grafana and teleport locally in Docker to provide like local access to a sort of web app that I'm running. And is that an agent on the web server? It can be, yeah. It can be on the web server host itself. So a very popular example of this would be like if you have a Grafana dashboard, or I can see you do the Kubernetes dashboard, people will make it publicly exposed. And so you could give a loopback address that only the Teleport agent on that host can access it. And then it creates the reverse tunnel back to Teleport to make sure that there's no sort of no remote access to it. So this prevents you from needing to put those apps on the public, yeah. at least the, the HTTP part of it. <laughs> yeah. All right. Alexander has a question. What encryption is used between the inside node or agent and the outside machine? Is there any mechanism for posture check? Yeah. So we have a few things based upon how you run it. You can have a CA pin, which is a hash of teleport certificate authority which you can use to verify that the auth server is the right auth server. If you're using this edge mode, we just do it through the mutual TLS um, certificate. There's some encoding on making sure that you're joining the correct host. So for me, as an admin, as a Kubernetes person, I just have to make sure teleports on my machine, teleport command line is on my machine, kube controls on my machine, the command line tool, and then when I run those TSH logins, that's all I have to do. I, could just, I run the login, and now my kube control is able to talk to that server. Yes. So the first batch connection does take a little bit of time to do the initial handshake, but we're like connected to a, this is just an empty cluster that I've been running for a week or so. And on, is the, is my kube control actually talking, is my kube control command line actually talking to the proxy server directly? Is that how the connection is yeah. happening? Okay. All right. And so in that case, when you did the login, if you, you were like earlier, you were talking about this new thing of requiring uh, having others approve your login. Is that where all that process would take place during the login phase? Or yeah, it would take place prior to it. So you'd ask for access to the cluster. Uh huh. Oh, maybe an elevated role. And okay. And then that certificate, based on your policies, I'm assuming that you configure on the teleport, the, the login certificates are time-bombed based on the policy? Because I yeah, didn't so, see you ask for amount of time or anything like that in the command line. No, so by default, I have a 30-hour session. Oh, okay. And then I've also, this is quite a large, generous role, but I have access to all clusters. Groups. So it is for demos. <laughs> we always get God, uh, God access in demos. Yeah. Very cool. Does this take care of RBAC 
management of a Kubernetes cluster for me? Or do I need to already have all those set up and then apply these policies here? Like, how does that work? Yeah, you'd have to set it up on um, your cluster of choice based upon how you want to define the roles. Mm -hmm. So we have some people I know who create users in Kubernetes based upon their user, but we have some more advanced these are like internal DB users, but you can also put in external identity provider options. So if you have an SSO provider which for your Kubernetes cluster, you can map that same thing into Teleport as well. Okay. Yeah, I was wondering if I could have roles in Kubernetes and then specifically have users in Teleport and alleviate needing specific users because Teleport's logging all the things, right? So it's showing the connection, it's showing who did it. So now I'm maybe not so much looking at my cube logs and I'm now paying more attention to Teleport logs, if that's the only way you can get into my Kubernetes Cluster, server. Yeah. 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 So in that case, it depends upon the risks in your team and how you want to uh, provide access. Maybe you have like system masters for the ops team, but you have a dev role, which is like fine grade, but all developers share the Kubernetes dev group. And then you create custom users based and then use Teleport to give them access. Yeah. So I see that there's potential for, for a lot of configuration in the Teleport itself and in, in the proxy or server or whatever we're, we're calling it. <laughs> I keep forgetting the names. Yeah. Can I put that stuff in Git and not have it stored on the server? Can I control teleport through GitOps or some sort of... Yeah. Uh, I forget the resource for the RBAC connectors, but you can like get these and set them. And then we also have an API too that you can configure it as well. We do have some customers who have, I think, 10,000 different roles. Oh, wow. So you can really customize it. But if right. you actually have that many, you probably configured in something weird. And there's like some other more advanced like regexes that you can do to like really narrow down your roles. Right. Okay. Is, the, is what we've been seeing so far, is this all the open source stuff? Yep. Okay. And then what does, if I use this, is it the SaaS solution? Is that correct and best way to describe that? Yeah. Yeah. So is that just alleviate? What am I getting? What can I pay for? I guess it's maybe. Yeah. We have Teleport Enterprise, which I think includes CloudNow. And that just means you don't have to run this root cluster. So we mm -hmm. run and maintain Teleport. If you're used to being very SaaS centric, it just makes your administration a bit easier. There's one less thing to worry about. But often people like Teleport because they can run it themselves within the data center and really limit and sort of fine tune and control it. Okay. So you have the SaaS offering essentially. Yeah. Are the four. You, you, I think we can talk about at the beginning about there's different types of teleport or different, maybe I'm thinking of the different ways, different types of resources I can connect. To. So I, I like the database stuff was really interesting to me. And I was, you may not, may or not have a demo for that, but I didn't quite understand how a protocol specific connection worked. If I bring up a SQL GUI for MySQL, is it actually talking the MySQL to the proxy? Is that kind of what's happening there? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So sometimes it's a little bit like yak shaving for the intricacies of the different platforms. But once you configure it, you do it once and then you can access it. Talking about GUIs, lots of GUIs do support certificates, it, especially in MySQL. Like they still call them like SSL certificates. I don't know if they're not updated to TLS, but you can also support it too. So you can use short-lived certificates for access for Postgres and MySQL as well. Yeah, I was going to say, is this... Um... I'm trying to figure out how that connection works. Because obviously, like, this is another problem of when we're troubleshooting, right? There's a database, let's say it's RDS in AWS, and I got a Postgres server in there, and it's the production database, and we're seeing weird errors. 
and we're worried that it may be something wrong with the SQL data, and we just need to get someone connected directly to the database to do some selects and figure out if the data needs to be somehow got screwed up. And that process inevitably, it's like, now I'm creating a database user and I'm handing that to a particular person and now they always have it and the passwords never expire. And that would be, is that kind of a scenario where this just replaces that whole workflow? Yeah. Yeah. And it's a similar vein. Databases have the most sensitive information. You might have a range of people from like uh, data engineering to just an engineer wants to run a query, like any kind of like human interaction, you should use sort of teleport just because you get so much visibility into what's happening about those right. database actions. And that's a good distinction to make real quick. It sounds like teleport is focused on humans connecting to systems or resources, not resources connecting to resources. Yeah, you can configure. So you can use teleport with Jenkins, for example, and it, just, it also depends upon your threat model. You can't necessarily give Jenkins a 10-hour certificate for access because it needs a new one in 10 hours. Right. And so in that case, we have people who use our API and they always reissue Jenkins a new certificate every 10 hours or even have people do it each run. And so what that means is if your CI system was ever compromised and someone got the certificates of the service, they only got access for that short period of time and everything like refreshed again. Okay. If you start thinking about short-lived certificates, you get like a much better like hygiene kind of policy in place. Right. All year long, I've been talking about GitHub Actions. Do you have anything in the works for something with GitHub Actions for that so that we can run an action against, for example, I've got some functional tests that I'm running in GitHub Actions on GitHub Action Public Runners, and they need a remote database, maybe because it's got to actually test RDS and some S3 stuff inside of a VPC. So is there is there anything with it? Anything out of the box, but I think it's something fun to explore. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan this year of getting all of my tooling into their own actions so that I can just basically plug and play a, a workflow together and not have to write a bunch of custom bash. And I'm trying to downplay all the bash scripts that everyone's putting in their CI and say, let's get back to declarative approaches and try to take our CI to the next level. So we've talked a lot about GitHub Actions. So I just thought I'd ask yeah, there. Yeah, definitely to do more. Yeah, so Sly's asking about, yeah, database GUIs like SSMS, or is this really just command line tooling? So it sounds like the, the GUIs have to support certificates. Yeah, if you come to docs, I think there's actually a page here for guides for database GUI clients. And these are the ones that we've tried. So like PG admin. Okay. And they're like, it's a bit weird, these sort of these GUIs. So just like read our instructions, you can also reach out to us. We're happy to help. And so what you do is you load in the key file, which kind of stays the same. And you just do THH login, which will refresh them. Oh, okay. Yeah, because I have to keep remembering that this isn't some system-based VPN that allows anything to run through that tunnel. This is a protocol-specific, and it doesn't wrap my client tools, it sounds like. It's dependent upon the client tools functionality. And this is all yeah. using PKI? This is like all certificate-based? Yeah. So we've talked about Kubernetes, we've talked about SSH, we've talked about database connections. You want to cover real quick, since we got a few more minutes, you want to cover a little bit more of how the web-based access works? Yeah, I'm actually, I just have this Docker Compose script, which it just has Grafana and Teleport running. So what we have is we just have a Grafana service and a Teleport service running. We have to have a small network, like a bridge network between these two. And this is running a node nap mode. Of a range of applications, the Grafana dashboard, 
and then it's the connections going through Teleport. Even you can like access this. And this is an example of using Teleport for application access. You might want to secure your own Grafana dashboard, or you could use this for if you had some staging or a local dev environment you wanted to share with the rest of your teammates. You could use Teleport application access to share it and get some early feedback. I'm trying to think about how that works. So uh, you've got that running on your local system. You're like you're creating some custom Grafana dashboard. How do I get access to it? How does that connection actually work? How it works is you can think of it like an SSH reverse tunnel. And so the initial connection goes through teleports and then it proxies your connection and down to my machine where I have this teleport running as sort of a sidecar and that sort of puts that connection okay. back into the teleport root cluster and you access it through the root cluster. It sounds a little bit like inlets, if you've ever heard of Alex Ellis's inlets proxy. We've talked about it on the show before. We've had him on the show. So basically your machine is reaching out to your teleport server, making that permanent connection that all this protocol is t- uh, tunneling through. And then I am typing in the URL of essentially of the proxy server, right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So to me, it looks like you just have an internet TLS proxy with a friendly name that happens to then redirect it to your machine. Okay. Yeah. Like Grafana, for me, I can probably access it on this. Access it on this. I think putting access on zero, zero. This is how I can like, access it through kind of like Docker networking. Right. Directly on your machine without teleport. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I like that sidecar an- analogy. So then would you need one of these teleport sidecars for each? web app that you wanted to have distinctly in that list? Not necessarily. You can add multiple ones, but it's probably a good security model to have one sidecar. They're very small, lightweight instances. Then you just have a local loopback so you don't have to put the application too wide on the network. Yeah, otherwise I would imagine you can't granularly control each individual one. It's it's all or nothing if you're putting a bunch in there. So this is almost like an application list of things I can access that I may not have direct connectivity may or may not have direct connectivity to those things, but almost becomes like the, uh, this is a, it's a totally different technology, but this kind of reminds me of if anyone's ever had to run like a Citrix server, uh, you would get a web page with all these app buttons and they would be running all over the place. You have no idea where those apps are actually running and what data center or whatever, but you, the user just sees a web page, you click it, the thing opens and it's magic. And that's a totally different technology, but it didn't matter what system I was on or where I was on the network, I could just get to those things. So that's a pretty interesting workflow there. Yeah. So when it's listing applications, is that including Kubernetes cube control no, or is that really just web applications? These are web dashboards. Okay. I have added like the standard Kubernetes dashboard before. So like the Kubernetes dashboard because it's HTTP. Yeah, very neat. And again, this is all open source right now. Yep, the... everything's been open source. A question from the audience. Mohammed asks, uh, for tunneling, does it use something like WireGuard under the hood? We don't use WireGuard currently. I actually have a really good blog post on using WireGuard for Kubernetes. Is WireGuard protocol specific or is it more of a universal tunnel? I always understood it as a universal. It's universal tunnel. So if you're interested in, in WireGuard and using WireGuard for Kubernetes, Kevin wrote this blog post, which we used for Gravity, but I think it's an open source project you can use. So if you ever want to go deep on WireGuard for Kubernetes, I'd highly check around recommending out this post. And it covers sort of everything and kind of goes deeper wormhole? into it. Yeah, yeah wormhole, yeah. Um, all right. Uh, anything else you want to show off before we uh, wrap this up? No, I, I think we've covered a lot today. It's been a lot of fun. Okay, yeah. So how do they get it? Get yeah, you just go to get started. It's free download. You can download it here. I'd recommend checking out this quick start guide. I have a short five minute video on setting it up. 
If you have seven, if there's 77 people on the phone on the line right now, you could get us to 10,000 stars. <laughs> All right, I'll put my star in. So we're a, a gravitational, get up, gravitational teleport, right? Yeah, yeah. gravitational. In fact, yeah, gravitational on, teleport. on the website on, on github.com, it, it actually just shows 9.9K. So I will put everyone to that, that GitHub. We'll see if we can't get you a little bit closer. A little bit close. It's a vanity metric. Well, yeah, but it's fun. We all love round numbers. I've been watching my Twitter feed for the longest time, waiting for it to hit 10,000, and it's been really slow going, but I'm excited that it might happen one day, maybe this year. Who knows? But yeah, so we can go to the website, download it, walk through the examples, or you can read all about it on the table of contents on GitHub if that's your preference. I tell you what, I'm, I spend so much of my life on GitHub now, I might as well just have a GitHub computer. Like all my tabs are all GitHub. And so I almost always prefer the GitHub format over website formats. Yeah. Actually, if you want to get started, this is super concise. Read me. You don't have to go to our website. Um, right. Everything you need is here. And then also if you're interested in hacking and Go, it's like a super clean Go project as well. Also hiring. There you go. If you want to hack those... on some open source Go, come join yeah, the ship. About every month I hear, I, I work with a lot of projects, obviously, and have a lot of students. And all the time I see people switching to Golang. And it's so much to the point now that I feel like that even if I don't develop it in it every day, I just need to know it now. Like it, it's become one of those things like Python or Bash or uh, that you just, or JavaScript. It's almost like at some point you're going to be expected to know. If you're in the cloud native space, you probably need to at least know how to read Golang. It's awesome that you guys have such open source. Jason, thank you for the open source community version. And... I think that's going to wrap it up. Thanks so much for being on the show. We've been planning this now for about a month, I think. I have been very curious about this product and wanting to use it on my own stuff, especially not realizing how much of it is open source. It seems very interesting to me to be able to have universal, because I have all the same needs, just on a personal level. I have Kubernetes clusters that I use. I have nodes that I want to get into, and I have websites running in places like the Kubernetes dashboard that I don't necessarily want to have just complete open public access. And the only thing that's blocking me is the Kubernetes certificate that's only on my machine because I haven't put it anywhere else or backed it up. This might be a good thing to check out. Um, yeah. Thanks, Ben. You can see, by the way, you can get a hold of him on Twitter. I'm just going to volunteer him. If you have any further questions, get him on Twitter. Oh, we've got uh, a Slack channel too if you want to join us. Oh, nice. Open, so yeah, so you have more questions and I'm sure there's people Slack. in there to, to help. Right. Thank you so much, Ben, for being on the show. Go. Cool. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening and I'll see you in the next episode. Mm -hmm.